You're listening to Mysteries Still Unsolved, a podcast where we discuss unsolved mysteries both past and present. I'm your host, Rochelle. Today, we will discuss Babes, Planes, and Trains, a recap and update of the fifth episode of Unsolved Mysteries with Mr. Robert Stack. Hello, hello, and welcome back to Mystery Still Unsolved. I'm so happy to be back here with all of you again today. We have so many announcements, and I'm an impatient person, so I just kind of want to wrap those up and get them out of the way. I, I don't know. I was raised in New York, and I am a true believer in the New York Minute because I literally get so infuriated when people don't just, like, get to the point. <laughs> In fact, I had a, I have a brother-in-law who was dating a girl and she is from Utah, but a lot of people in Utah, if you're not familiar with Utah, a lot of people from Utah came here from California and don't get me wrong. I love California and I love Californians, but they speak very slowly. (laughs) And so I remember, you know, they would get back from a trip and I would be making conversation and being like, Hey, so how did it go? And she would be like, oh, it was amazing. First, we, and in my head, I would be like, oh my gosh, hurry up. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, I'm not going to ask you another question because it's going to take 10 years. Um, So yeah, um, I always joke because I was raised in New York and my husband, he's from, he was born in California. He doesn't really claim California because he like went to school and stuff in Utah, but I still kind of feel like he has that slow speaking about him. So we joke and say that we are the marriage of the East and the West coast. And because of that, there's a lot of, uh, cultural differences, I guess you could say. And speaking slowly and speaking fastly is one of those, one of those differences. So, um, First off, I want to thank you all so much for the positive feedback on my last episode um, from last week about Amelia Earhart. I'm so glad to know that I'm not the only person infatuated with her case. And for those who have been DMing me about covering that case, you all really seem to like it. So that obviously made me feel so happy. I'm so glad that I was able to do Amelia Earhart justice in your eyes as well. She really was such an incredible woman, and it's such a shame that her life was cut short. I can only imagine all of the other amazing, incredible feats that she would have accomplished had her life continued on. Um, And it breaks my heart that her death is still shrouded in mystery even so many years later. I was able to talk to an incredible artist this past week who actually created an amazing piece of art in Amelia Earhart's honor. It truly encapsulates her beauty, her sense of adventure, and her incredible grace and poise. His name is Johnny Sraben, or Srabian, sorry if I'm saying that wrong, and his incredible work can be found on Instagram at Johnny's Johnny's Rabian and also at S Real Clothing. And I will link his YouTube channel and Etsy and those Instagram accounts in the show notes because I know that I'm slaughtering his name. Um, but shout out to Johnny. You are so incredibly talented. Thank you so much for reaching out this week. 
Next, thank you all so much for participating in the giveaway last week. I was so impressed by how many of you knew the correct answers to my funny trivia questions. I was even more happy that many of you thought that I was 24 or 28, (laughs) which made me incredibly excited as I will be turning 31 next month. And you know, that basically means I'm seeing glimpse of the Grim Reaper and I'm on death's door. (laughs) The winner of the giveaway... This is the person who will be getting a $20 gift card to either Amazon or Starbucks, their choice, whatever they pick, I'll send it to them, and one of my favorite true crime books. And the winner of that giveaway is, drumroll please, at christy.lu.1989. Thank you so much for participating. I will, of course, be reaching out to you in the next week to send that out to you. Thanks again to all who participated. If you didn't win, don't let it get you down. I will actually be doing another giveaway next month in honor of my birthday. So you'll have another chance very shortly. If you had no idea that we were even running a giveaway, then you need, you need, to follow me on Instagram at Mystery Still Unsolved. That way you will never miss a single episode or miss out on a giveaway ever again. Also, don't forget tonight, tonight, tonight's the night of our live event on Instagram. I will be going live tonight at 7 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. I am so excited to talk to as many of you as I can. I hope that you can make it and I'll answer some of your questions and just chat and hang out with you for about 15 to 20 minutes or so. I mean, obviously I'm happy to hang out longer if people come. So just be there or be square. Um, Today's episode is going to be amazing, not only because we get to talk about the love of my life, Mr. Robert Stack. Robert and I are so close that I... I'm allowed to call him Robbie. Fondly, it's okay. We're together. But also, it means that we will be discussing three cases today. And in my eyes, the more the merrier, right? All right. So without further delay, let's get started on today's episode. So as many of you know, I recently went on a road trip across the country to visit my parents who live in upstate New York. I had a lot of time on my hands and I thought, what the hell? I'm going to watch old Unsolved Mysteries episodes and seriously... Watching those episodes saved my sanity. My kids, they're six and two, they would be loudly singing or whining about snacks or asking, are we there yet? Are we there yet? When we still had like 20 hours to go and I could just pop in my little headphones and be calmed and soothed by the sweet and sultry voice of my boo thing. Our first story takes us to the airport, which is where I wish I would have been during my entire 28-hour drive from Utah to New York. Robert Stack walks down a flight of airplane stairs, which is giving me total deja vu from that movie um, Airplane that he was in. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Brian and I watched that movie recently, and it is seriously so funny. If you have no idea what I'm talking about because you've never seen it before, go and do it right now. Okay, well, not right now. Finish this episode and then go watch it. Anyway, so Robert Stack tells us from the steps of an airplane that the final flight of D.B. Cooper is possibly one of the most mysterious disappearances to date. And I'm going to stop him there and be like, uh, besides Amelia Earhart, of course, right, Robbie? He didn't say that, but I'm assuming that that's what he meant. You know, me and Robbie are so in tune with each other. It's almost like we can read each other's minds and speak for each other. 
Many people, including the FBI, have looked into DP's disappearance. Most are convinced that he must have died after leaping out of a 727 commercial plane at more than 10,000 feet up in the air. But still, there are some who believe he survived. The fact remains, nobody really knows if D.B. Cooper is dead or alive. But let me tell you a little bit about it. On Thanksgiving Eve, 1971, at 2 p.m., D.B. Cooper walked into the Portland airport. He was dressed in a suit, tie, and held a briefcase in his hand. Um, They want to inform you that this briefcase was cheap, which I think is kind of a cheap shot at DB, if you will, but they want to let you know that he was carrying a very inexpensive briefcase. How you would even know that? I have no idea. I wouldn't be able to tell the difference between a cheap briefcase and an expensive one. Whatever. So DB approaches the ticket counter and purchases his ticket. Um, in the reenactment, he pays $20 for a flight from Portland to Seattle. And I'm like, uh, that's the true unsolved mystery. How come we're not still paying 20 bucks for a flight? Um, But before completing his purchase, he asked the ticket agent if the plane was a 727. The ticket agent looked it up and confirmed that indeed it was. And this becomes very important and vital to this case because upon further investigation, it is discovered that a 727 was the only commercial plane at that time, it might still be, um, from which a successful parachute jump could be made from the cabin. Cooper had purchased a one-way ticket to Seattle. He was the last person to board the plane, and he sat in the very back, like near the stinky bathrooms. Florence, who was a flight attendant working that day, was the first person to have a conversation with Cooper on the plane. She approached him to tell him that he would actually need to place his briefcase, which was on his lap, either in the overhead bin or underneath the seat in front of him. Cooper said nothing, but instead passed Florence a note which is never a good sign. The note read, quote, Miss, I have a bomb in this briefcase and I want you to sit with me. End quote. She looked up at him and he said something along the lines of, you know, this is not a joke. I've got a bomb in here. He even opened up the briefcase and Florence was able to see with her own eyes what appeared to be a large battery with six sticks of dynamite wrapped up with twine. Cooper said to Florence, all I have to do is attach this wire to this wire and we're all dead. Florence went to the cockpit to alert the pilots. Florence said that the crew was terrified, obviously. They um, notified the authorities of the hijacking and then those people notified the FBI. Cooper wanted $200,000 in cash in small bills of 10s and 20s and four parachutes, two front packs and two backpacks. He demanded that the flight remain in the air until all of his demands were met. He also demanded that none of the other passengers should be notified of the hijacking that was in process. The flight crew did the best that they could to act normal, but you know that they must have been like shitting their pants (laughs) because literally that would be me. Um, The FBI in Seattle gathered the money together. Each bill was photographed and each serial number recorded. Cooper also insisted the plane be immediately refueled upon landing and that no passengers would be able to leave the plane until his demands were met. After landing in Seattle, they felt it would be best for the plane to remain on the runway rather than pull up to the airport to taxi um, because there's a freaking bomb on the plane and a mentally unstable man. Um, At 5.43 p.m., Flight 305 landed in Seattle and parked near a remote field.
field. So the FBI brought out the money and the parachutes. Um, these were handed over to one of the flight attendants named Tina, who brought the money to Cooper. The money alone weighed 21 pounds. The four parachutes were delivered, but unbeknownst to anyone, one of the parachutes was actually defective and would not open if used. How they know this, I have no idea. They never expand into it. I'm like, if somebody must have known, because how would you know? I don't know. The crew and FBI were worried that since Cooper had demanded four parachutes that he was planning on taking hostages with him, the passengers on board were annoyed with the... Um, the delay, but remained calm as they were all blissfully unaware still of the drama that was going on inside the plane and all around them. During the time the plane was on the ground, there were FBI agents surrounding the plane with scope rifles ready to take out D.B. Cooper at a moment's notice. Cooper was very suspicious, um, so he demanded that all of the shades be drawn down. It was taking a long time to get this freaking plane refueled and Cooper was getting impatient kind of like me um when I encounter any slight inconvenience and more and more furious so the pilot recorded a radio radio the FBI and said uh hello if you guys are trying to like stall for time like now is not the time because he's getting really pissed and we don't know what he's capable of so after radioing that into the FBI you know magically the fuel was quickly put into the plane and they were able to continue on. So finally, the passengers were allowed to get off, but Cooper wanted the flight crew, so the pilot and the co-pilot, and one flight attendant to stay on board. Um, Florence, who was the woman who spoke to him immediately upon entering the plane, said that the co-pilot turned to her and he said, Florence, you better get the hell out of here. So Tina was the other flight attendant, and she ended up being the unlucky one that had to stay. The passengers were told of their harrowing experience after they got off, and seriously, not one of them knew that any of that had been going on. Most couldn't even remember the strange man with the briefcase sitting at the back of the plane near the toilets. Cooper wanted the plane to take off with the rear passenger door open and with the flight of stairs down, and the pilot refused as he knew that that would be unsafe. The two argued back and forth until they came to the agreement that the door would remain closed during takeoff, but once in the air, they would open it up for him. At 7.37, the plane left Seattle. The 7.27 commercial plane had the sky to itself as the tower had notified all other planes in the area of the hijacking, and um, so all those planes gave the Flight 305 a clear pathway. At some point, Cooper sent the flight attendant away and told her to close the curtain behind her as she left, which she did, but she said that as she closed the curtain, she saw him tying something, she wasn't sure what, around his waist. Later in the cockpit, a light flashed, indicating that Cooper was opening a door. At 8.12 p.m., the pilot radioed down to the tower to let authorities know that the pressure had changed in the cabin and that everyone was experiencing, like, ear-popping sensations. Somewhere over the forest of Washington State, Cooper jumped, and he has never been seen or heard from again. Since D.B. Cooper's hijacking, all 727s have been modified so that the rear door is literally impossible to open during flight, which seems like they should have done that a long time ago, but hey, whatever. Trial and error, you live, you learn. 
Then Robert Stack shares with us an important clue that may hold the key to the true identity of D.B. Cooper. Upon landing in Reno after D.B. Cooper, like, jumped out of the plane, the crew described Cooper as best as they could. They were able to come up with a composite sketch that I will share with you on the Instagram post that I'm going to make today. Based on the pilot's report, they believed that D.B. Cooper had jumped out at the most southern tip of Washington state. They were able to narrow it down to a 20-mile radius. No matter where Cooper landed, many believe that he could have survived. A large white object was repeatedly reported in the weeks following in a lake called Merwin. The lake was continuously searched, but they never could find any sort of large white object. Many people believe that if D.B. survived, he would have been injured, and one man believes that he would have made it to, like, a little creek in order to get water, but that he would have later died. Some feel Cooper could not have survived that rugged terrain, especially while wearing a business suit, but they also agree that if he had anything in his pockets, which it's not really known if he did, he could have lived a while and that he could have made it out. Um, one man says, quote, all a man needs to survive in the wilderness is a pair of long underwear, a cigarette lighter, and a knife. So now you know what you need to survive in Washington's terrain. <laughs> Many believe he buried his shoes and the briefcase in those woods, taking some of the money with him and went into the big city to just like blend in, keep like a low profile. The search for Cooper continued for decades with no leads. Then, seven years later, in 1978, a hunter discovered a plastic placard of a 727, and it had been ripped from the lower stairwell of Flight 305. Fifteen months later, an even more dramatic discovery was made. On February 10, 1980, a family was preparing a barbecue about 100 miles south of Seattle. They planned on digging a fire pit, but one of their sons dug up something else a wad of cash. The bills totaled $5,000, and all of those bills had serial numbers on them that corresponded with the money that Cooper had been given by the FBI that night. So we know for a fact that this money was part of the ransom money. Many think that this is proof that Cooper is dead. Others say, if they had found $200,000, I would believe, and they, and they would gladly say, yeah, you know what? It's all over. He did die, obviously, but there was only $5,000 that was found. Where's the rest? Still, skeptics believe that if he had survived, the money would have shown up in circulation, but so far, no one has reported any of that money. Could D.B. Cooper have struck again? Five months later, another skyjacking took place that was incredibly similar to the other one. This man was arrested and sentenced to 45 years in prison. He actually escaped while in prison and was later killed in a standoff between himself and the FBI. Due to the resemblance of the pictures, many believe that D.B. Cooper and this man who was killed, Richard McCoy, are the same man. Florence, the flight attendant, said that the composite sketch net made of the man who hijacked her plane all those years ago never really sat well with her. She said it sort of looks like him, but not exactly. She mainly has a problem with the hair and the face of the sketch, which is literally everything involved in a composite sketch. So she's like, yeah, everything is right about it except for uh, everything. 
At the request of Unsolved Mysteries, they had Florence sit in with a very prestigious sketch artist at the time who took what she said and together they created a new composite sketch. Florence believes that this new composite sketch is much more accurate and she hopes that it will help in identifying the true identity of D.B. Cooper. Breaking news. Okay, so the update on the episode said that the FBI had officially closed their investigation into the D.B. Cooper case. And that's all that Unsolved Mysteries wrote. So, you know, I had to do some digging to figure out why the FBI would have done that. So, it appears that the case is closed, but not really with any real resolution. Apparently, the investigation was just, like, so costly. Um, The FBI was just using too many too much money and using too many resources with no real leads ever coming of it, um, that they had to allocate those resources somewhere else. All right. So now something that is interesting that actually wasn't mentioned in the Unsolved Mysteries episode, and I'm not really sure why, but apparently Cooper had been wearing a black JCPenney tie. You remember JCPenney's? I love that place. This tie was apparently removed before he jumped, and the FBI was actually able to retrieve a DNA sample off of this tie. This is how Richard McCoy was actually officially cleared from being involved. Like, D.B. Cooper and Richard McCoy are not the same person. Yes, McCoy had hijacked a plane in a similar manner five months later, but he had not hijacked Flight 305. Perhaps we will never know the true identity of D.B. Cooper and the truth about whether he survived or was killed that fateful night. In my personal opinion, I feel like remains would have been found by now, but maybe not. Washington state is very lush with a lot of forested areas that like people might not come across all the time. It's possible that he landed and died in the location within those forests that he just like hasn't been found yet, or maybe animals got to him, or I don't know. It's pretty remote there and isolated in certain parts. And who knows? Maybe a Sasquatch got him. I don't know. (laughs) I'm just joking. Or am I? Who knows? Now, on to our second story. So, in between story one and story two, I... Okay, so when I was recording story one, I had a, like, a poor nose strip on my nose. And so, I was like, okay, I'm going to finish this first story, and then I'm going to take this poor strip off my nose. Um, So, I just did that, and I am literally, like, tearing up right now, and I feel like my nose has just been, like, the skin has been ripped off, but anyways, that's what's going on with me, so if I'm acting a little bit different, just know that it's because I just literally murdered my nose. Anyways, on to our second story. In the wee hours of August 23rd, 1987, a large cargo train weighing 6,000 tons made its nightly route to Little Rock, Arkansas. The train was about a mile long. I mean, I told you that it was a large train. Why didn't you believe me? (laughs) It was traveling at 52 miles per hour. So far, the journey had been uneventful. There had been smooth sailing as the train approached the tiny town of Bryant, Arkansas. Suddenly, Schroyer, the conductor, saw something in in the train's path. He couldn't tell what it was at first, but as his train grew closer, he was able to make out two bodies. It was a horrifying discovery as he got even closer and learned that the bodies appeared to belong to two teenage boys who were lying on the tracks motionless across, you know, across the railroad tracks. 
They honked to startle the boys and get them to move with no success. Despite the engineer's attempt to make an emergency stop, the weight and speed of the train prevented them from avoiding the boys. Three to five seconds later, the train had run them over. The conductor said, I know three to five seconds doesn't seem like a lot of time, but when you know that you're bearing down on a couple of children, three to five seconds is an eternity. The boys' bodies traveled with the train as it stopped a half mile later. Obviously, the boys' bodies were terribly mangled. The two boys were identified as 16-year-old Don Henry and 17-year-old Kevin Ives. These two boys were best friends and popular at their local high school. It is extraordinary that the two boys would lay motionless without moving a single muscle as this train came towards them. The state medical examiner claimed that the boys had been under the influence of marijuana at the time of their death and ruled the death as accidental, but Don and Kevin's parents could not and would not accept this ruling. They have been fighting ever since to find out the truth about what happened to their beloved sons. Larry, who is Kevin's father, said that he couldn't believe that his son could be that knocked out by marijuana. He said Kevin was very well watched in the home, and in fact, Larry had been home with the boys shortly before they were found on the tracks. He said that there's no way that those boys could have gotten that stoned in between the two times that he saw them um, before their deaths. Uh, He claims that even looking back, at his son's life, there were no red flags to indicate that either of the boys were into any type of heavy drug use. Don and Kevin were just your average, typical teenage boys. They enjoyed sports. They liked to hunt and fish. They liked to work on their cars. Don was a natural-born comedian, and Kevin loved being his best friend's audience. Most weekends, the two boys double-dated with girls at their local high school, but this night, on August 22nd, Kevin and Don had met up with a large group of friends on the outskirts of Little Rock. It was a known hangout spot to teenagers in the area to just, like, have a good time. At midnight, the two boys left together. Kevin waited on the porch while Don went inside of his home to talk to his father at approximately 12.15 a.m. Don had come home to inform his dad of he and Kevin's plans. He told his he told his dad like what they had planned, and his dad said, All right, just be careful. Don't do anything stupid. Don agreed, laughed, grabbed a couple of headlamps and his .22 caliber rifle. The boys set off to go spotlighting, which I'm a city girl. I have no idea. I had no idea what spotlighting was, but basically it's a type of night hunting and it's actually illegal in Arkansas. Basically, it entails one person shining a light into the eyes of an animal, usually a deer, kind of putting that animal into like some sort of like hypnotic trance. And then while that person is doing that, then the other person shoots the animal while it's distracted. It was a common activity done by teenage boys in the area, and so far Don and Kevin had avoided getting caught. That night, the boys went to their usual hunting ground near the train tracks. It was almost 1 a.m. Three hours later, the boys were seen on those train tracks by the train engineer. The engineer gets emotional as he recounts his... um, his tail. He says that the boys were laid out side by side, perfectly side by side. They were partially covered by a green tarp. Don's 22 rifle laid parallel next to the boys. 
Neither boy was moving, even after he honked the horn multiple times. He said he got no reaction from either of them, not so much as a flinch. What had caused the two boys to lay down side by side on the railroad track? The ME who conducted the autopsy said that the boys had each smoked the equivalent of 20 marijuana cigarettes. He determined that Kevin and Don had been in an induced sleep caused by these drugs. He ruled it as an accident, but again, like I said, the boys' parents were never too convinced on that. Kevin's mother wanted to know if the boys were as stoned as the ME claimed. How is it that the boys were able to lay down side by side in an identical position? And I gotta admit, girl has a point. Don's dad said that he knew there was something fishy going on when he learned that his son's gun had been placed on the gravel. He said that his son was very protective of this particular gun, babying it the way someone like might baby their car. Don's dad said that there is just no way in hell that Don would have risked scratching the wood on this gun by laying it down on gravel. The two sets of parents hired a private investigator who claimed that every time he would investigate this case, he was met with so much tension and so much resistance from not only local people, but also authorities, which prevented the private investigator from really getting anywhere. He just kept hitting brick walls. Five months later, the parents held a press conference to force the police to reopen the investigation as it had been closed after being ruled as an accident. The day after the press conference, the case was in fact reopened. A prosecutor worked extremely hard to get the boys' bodies exhumed to be re-examined by an expert of the parents' choosing. This new medical examiner concluded that the boys had not smoked 20 cigarettes at all, but only one to three joints. So the marijuana-induced sleep theory wasn't really holding up anymore. He also concluded that one of the boys was already dead upon the train's impact and that the other boy was alive, but only Barely. In July of 1988, a grand jury reversed the ruling and the cause of death was officially changed to probable homicide. So it went from an accident to probable homicide. Garrett, the prosecutor, continued to work feverishly to discover the truth about what had happened to those boys that night. He focused on the green tarp. Neither boy had owned such a tarp. Neither family had owned such a tarp. Why had it been found partially covering Don and Kevin's bodies? Who did the tarp belong to? Where had it come from? The train engineer was adamant about seeing the green tarp on the boys and had told the police officers about it, but now the police officers claimed that they didn't even know anything about a green tarp. The engineer is very upset about that. And to make matters worse, this green tarp, nobody knows where it is. The ensuing investigation came up with an interesting lead, though. Apparently, one week before the boy's death, a man dressed in military garb had been seen spotted within the vicinity. His odd behavior had aroused suspicion to some of the other locals. A police officer named Danny Allen, in fact, had stopped to question him once when the military garb man opened fire on him before escaping. On the night Kevin and Don died, witnesses again reported seeing that same military guy. This time, he was leaving town, walking on a road less than 200 yards from where the boy's body was later found. Police have been unable to locate this man. 
Six weeks after the prosecutor had this case reopened, a similar case was discovered in Oklahoma, less than 200 miles from Little Rock. Two men had been found laying side by side on railroad tracks and had also been run over. They were laying motionless on the tracks in a position nearly identical to Kevin and Don's. Garrett believes that the boys were murdered. To cover their tracks, they laid the boys down on those railroad tracks and covered them up with a green tarp. The reason? He's not sure yet, but he's determined to find out. The prosecutor Garrett says that he's never owned a gun before investigating this case because he had never found the need to own one. But upon researching this case, he has since purchased a gun because he feels like something is very fishy and odd and nefarious about this case. There are things surrounding this case that make him fear for his very life. He feels that his life is in danger because he truly believes that there is some sort of malicious activity that is bigger than anything that anyone could ever comprehend or anticipate, perhaps even a police cover-up. Don's dad believes that his boys walked in on something they were not supposed to see, that this is a classic case of wrong place, wrong time, and because they saw or heard what they saw or heard, they were, quote, taken care of, end quote so that they couldn't repeat it to anyone ever. He knows that in his heart of hearts, the boys were murdered. Now he will do everything that he can to prove it. Since the recording of this episode, a forensic pathologist looked at Don's t-shirt and was able to definitively say that Don had been stabbed and Kevin's head had been crushed before being run over by that train. In light of this new evidence, the grand jury changed the cause of death from probable homicide to homicide. Upon researching this case myself, I came across an article that relayed a lot of important information that was discovered after this Unsolved Mysteries case aired in 1988. After reading through this article, I can totally see why the prosecutor um, Garrett fears for his life. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about this article now. On January 22, 1989, 26-year-old Greg Collins, who had been called to testify before the grand jury, died from three gunshot blasts to his face. In addition, just weeks before, Collins' friend, Keith Coney, who was also called to testify to the grand jury, died in a mysterious motorcycle accident. By March 1989, another recipient of a subpoena to appear before the grand jury, Daniel Booney Bearden, had disappeared. Another death supposedly connected with the case was that of 21-year-old Jeffrey Edward Rhodes, whose body was found in a landfill in April 1989. The deaths were ruled homicides in March 1990 after yet another investigation, but per the Arkansas Gazette, there were no arrests. On September 10, 1991, four years after the deaths of Kevin Ives and Don Henry, the announcement of Malik's resignation appeared in the Arkansas Gazette. With Governor Bill Clinton's presidential campaign beginning around the same time, some alleged that Malik had made a deal with Clinton. But Malik repeatedly denied the accusations. In 1994, the Clinton Chronicles, a propaganda video purporting to connect Bill Clinton with various crimes, was released. The deaths of Ives and Henry were among those to which Bill Clinton was supposedly connected. The Clinton Chronicles advanced the conspiracy theory that while governor of Arkansas, Clinton had a connection to a scandal involving large shipments of cocaine, guns, and money from Central America passing through Arkansas at the Mina Inter- 
Mountain Municipal Airport. It further speculated that the two boys had been murdered after stumbling upon a shipment moving through Saline County that night in August 1987. Harmon, who had had represented the Ives and Henry parents, was convicted of racketeering, conspiracy, extortion, and drug possession with intent to distribute in 1997. Leverett says in her book that this conviction and the resulting 11-year prison sentence handed down in 1998 proved to the boys' parents, at least, that their son's death had occurred in an environment of local corruption. Despite the exhaustive collection of details that Leverett provides in this book, she offers no answer to the question that it raises, and this case remains unsolved. In August 2016, a new lawsuit was filed by Linda Ive citing a violation of the Freedom of Information Act by local and federal officials or, quote, stonewalling, end quote, in relation to the boys' deaths. On November 15, 2017, a federal judge ordered three defendants in the suit, the Executive Office of U.S. Attorneys, the Drug Enforcement Administration, and the Department of Homeland Security to turn over for private review documents that had formerly been redacted. The judge dismissed several other agencies from the suit, including the Central Intelligence Agency, the U.S. Department, the FBI, and the Arkansas State Police. Uh, the suit was dismissed in 2019. It was reported in February 2018 that former World Wrestling Federation wrestler Billy Jack Haynes had recorded a video testimony in which he claimed to have witnessed the murders of Ives and Henry while providing security for a drug trafficking stop in 1987. All right, so... This case just gets crazier and crazier. Like, first they're like, oh, it's a police cover-up. Oh, and then the medical examiner lied, and he lied about so many other cases. Then they think it's, like, some conspiracy theory that has to deal with, like, Bill Clinton. And then we've got, like, a pro wrestler named Billy Jack Haynes. And then he, like, this is a weird concoct, like, a weird recipe filled with really random ingredients. So... I'm going to touch base on that video. So in a video posted recently, 2017-2018, Billy Jack Haynes claims that he is the wrestler who witnessed the boy's death. And he says, quote, I come with no mask. I come with no hidden voice, end quote. I come to you straight face to face because this is reality. Haynes said that he was compelled to come forward after the shooting death of Seth Rich, who was an employee of the Democratic National Committee. Several conspiracy theorists online have tried to connect Rich's death as well as the, quote, boys on the track, end quote, to the widely debunked Clinton body count conspiracy theory. I've never heard of this before. Basically, the former wrestler explains that he used to be a drug trafficker and was a hired enforcer during the 80s and was introduced to a politician drug dealer from Arkansas. I guess that could be Clinton, but there's also like another, a lot of other politicians that it could have been. Anyways, Haynes then alleges that this unnamed politician asked him to kill David Kennedy, the son of Robert F. Kennedy in 1984. In August of 1987, I, he said he was contacted by the Arkansas criminal politician and was asked if he would provide muscle at an Arkansas drug stop. So um, he basically says the criminal politician suspected that some money drops were being stolen. 
While conducting security during the alleged drug purchase, Haynes claimed that he witnessed the murders of Henry and Ives. Haynes also claims that the politician believed police officers were involved in the theft of the drug money. Haynes said that the teens were murdered by people working for the same criminal politician. He then said he met Linda Ives in 2006 and gave them the names of everyone involved to her private investigator at the time. So, this kind of alleges to that theory with Bill Clinton, some famous unnamed politician, uh, somehow involved in drugs, um, known as the Clinton body count. I can't really speak on it as I'm not too familiar with exactly what it is, but that's kind of what I gather from his statements. I mean, I know that the Clintons have been accused of like some legal activity, although I don't know specifically what they are. Just I've heard it like buzzing around, especially with that documentary that came out recently about Epstein. So, I mean, I don't know. It falls in line with some of those theories. And I feel like Conspiracy theories, even as crazy as they may sound at first, they usually stem from a small ounce of truth. And then, I mean, sometimes they go wild, but then sometimes they seem wild, but they act- in actuality are reality. Um, so maybe the Clintons were involved. I don't know. I'm not going to point fingers because I really don't know anything about this Clinton body count theory. I am going to play a clip, however, from an interview of Billy Jack Haynes. And I got to say, as I read that article, I was like, what a load of BS. This guy is literally just seeking fame because he's like a has-been or whatever. But after watching this interview, which I will link in the show notes for you if you're interested in watching it, I gotta say he seems pretty convincing. But you guys take a listen and let me know what you think. So what is it that you know about it? I know all about it. Like what was your exact experience that night? My experience is this, uh, I was contracted to go down there to kill two uh, Arkansas State Police officers that were stealing drops. They stole up to two to four million dollars is what I was told. And so to make that kind of money, I, I, I would have done it. I did it. I'm guilty. But that's not the way it happened, you know. There ended up being, I was there at the drop site, uh, the drop landed. Witnesses, other witnesses said the same thing, corroborated exactly what I said 30 years after. Witnesses came forward and said they seen the kids being beat up by a couple of cops, taken back where the area by the tracks. The drop was right by or near the tracks, maybe 100 feet, 120 feet. Went, went to the tracks, were on the tracks using the phone when we seen the kids. Kids took out. The cops took off, the two uh, cops that were involved in the, uh, the, the drops took out after them, brought them back, and they'd been beaten with flashlights. And they were over the shoulders of the two cops. The cops dropped them by the uh, railroad tracks. I was up on the tracks, and um, I didn't do it, but I was there, so I'm an accomplice. It doesn't make no difference. They, they took and threw them up on the track. So why were the, the kids were just accidental witnesses? Is that the issue with the kids? That's right. They were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. I guess they were deer spotlight. And, um, and so um, I said, these are just young kids. One kid was already dead. One kid was already beaten to death. And uh, Kevin Ives was a kid that was alive. And um, he, he said, you don't want to leave no witnesses. I said, well, it was a clean drop. I said, there was no nothing taken at the drop site. And uh, so I didn't want to, the kid to get killed and, and 
one of the cops took the butt of the rifle and butted him in the back of the head and split his head. Boom, I just split him right in two. Killed him instantly. Threw him up on the tracks by the hair and the crotch. They were handcuffed behind their back when they came back. And then um, I was told, and I did, put him between the tracks. But the tracks... You didn't actually see them put the kids on the tracks? You I, I, I helped put the kids on the tracks. No, I was there. Okay. I helped. You know, and, that, and that was, what you said was a green was a green tarp. It was a tarp that was put over them so they'd be hidden when they wrote, when the train came by. I guess at 4:30, a train came by and ran over them. And they said they fell asleep because of, like you said, pot. Had nothing to do with pot. You know, they were they were already dead. All right, so there you have it. And I've got to say. You know, I'm an amateur uh, criminal investigator, <laughs> catch potato sleuth, if you will. But um, this professional reporter who is interviewing this man um, is a huge idiot. Uh, I didn't include this part of the interview, but before they start asking the wrestler all of the tough questions they kind of like recap everything that happened and like this guy has clearly not done any homework or research before interviewing this man because all of his information was totally and completely incorrect um he said the wrong day billy jack haynes had to like correct him on the day he said that the that the boys were found inside of a garbage bag which not true. It's a green tarp. Um, he said that the gun was never recovered. That was a lie. Just, I don't know. Like, if this is your profession, if you're a reporter and your job is literally to interview people about sensitive crime-related topics such as this, like, can you at least do some homework? Like, can you at least, like, do some research? I don't know. That was my pet peeve about him, but I guess I can't say anything because I'm not, like, a legit, you know, but... I'm pretty professional. Anyways. Anyways. Um, Billy Jack Haynes totally implicates himself in this video, obviously. And he feels a lot of remorse in this clip. So if Billy was involved in these murders, I mean, I don't feel bad that he was involved in the murders. But I feel like he seems like a man who is trying to right a wrong albeit 30 years later he probably should have done it a lot sooner than that but he's trying to do it now and if he's telling the truth no one is taking it seriously and if that's true then that's really unfortunate um my only concern is that this video um or his original video when he first you know came out and said like i'm the guy blah 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 not this particular interview but the one that he released on his own volition, it has been viewed almost 90 million times and yet nothing has come of it. So that's concerning to me that if it was investigated, he's, he hasn't been arrested. So it might, must not have held water. Do you know what I mean? Um, but if the case, but if the police of Little Rock are involved, well, I guess it would make sense that these allegations are kind of being swept under the rug. Um, it appears that these boys' mysterious deaths are really making some people very, very nervous. And that's why all of these other mysterious deaths of people who are involved um, 
and like just trying to research what happened to Kevin and Don. Like they keep dying. A bunch of witnesses who were called to the grand jury, like either were mysteriously killed or mysteriously disappeared. Um, I don't know. This seems like this, like you first hear the story and you're just like, oh, this is about two boys who died in a tiny town. How unfortunate. But all of these other factors are just crazy. And like, I feel like we must be getting too close to comfort and that this must be like really like a huge big thing with multiple pieces. There's a lot of puzzle pieces going on here. So unfortunately to this day, this case does remain unsolved. Um, I hope one day we are able to make sense of this ginormous like Pandora's box of an of a case because it's literally it just get like the more you research it, the crazier and crazier it gets. Like we've got a pro wrestler now. All right. Anyways, um, on to our last case. In 1927, legendary Babe Ruth hit 60 home runs, a record that was longstanding for nearly three decades. His World Series ring, um, valued at $50,000, is missing. In 1956, Mickey Mantle hit the most home runs and had the best batting average of any player up to that point. His iconic uniform, valued at $15,000, has also disappeared. Pete Rose um, had more home runs than any other player at the time that this episode aired in 1988. I literally have no idea who holds that record now because I'm not really a baseball girl, but Rose's silver bat is worth $30,000 and it has also disappeared. Baseball memorabilia, I don't know if you know, is a multi-million dollar business. Uh, One of these famous collectors was named Dennis Walker, and he had amassed a collection worth over 10 to $22 million, and this collection is now missing. Um, This collection included the three aforementioned items that I just told you about. America's national pastime has been robbed of a portion of its history. In June of 1980, Walker quit his job as a poli-sci professor at a small community college and began an investment company. He concocted a host of, like, get-rich-quick business ideas and even opened up his own bank in Tonga. At first, Walker paid off of his own investors on schedule, so people loved working with him. Investors gave him upwards of $7 million, which he invested and then, you know, made more money. Investors could not get enough of him because they claimed Dennis had the Midas touch. Dennis would tell an investor, hey, if you give me $10,000, I will go ahead and turn it into $22,000. But the thing is, is that he wouldn't give people $20,000. He would actually give them a piece of paper telling him that he owed them $20,000 one year from now. Even Dennis's own employees invested in the company because they truly trusted and believed in him. Walker had always been an avid baseball fan. With the money he got from investors, he would purchase baseball memorabilia. It was almost as if he was living out a lifelong childhood dream and using other people's money to do it. Walker soon graduated from thousand dollar baseball cards to world series rings um and his investors didn't really seem to have a problem with him spending the money on that because they kind of saw it as um okay he's purchasing assets that like if the business were to ever go under he would have this like 10 to 22 million dollars of 
assets that he could turn into liquid assets and then he could pay us back. So it seems like the investors like weren't really upset on what he was spending his money on. So um, apparently Walker rented out an abandoned bank and he used it as a sports museum that he let people come. He would display out his memorabilia and he wanted like people to come and see it. Dennis had some incredible things. Um, not only the three things I talked to you about before, he also had two baseball cards from 1910, which valued at a whopping 70 grand, a diamond ring awarded to Pete Rose on the year that he hit 4,000 hits, which was valued at $30,000, and finally, the New York Yankee uniform worn by Babe Ruth, which we've talked about a lot. In 1986, the state of Oregon, who had been watching Dennis, got a warrant um, for his office to search his office. They charged him with fraud and racketeering. The search provided them with enough evidence that they were able to like, kind of go ahead with pressing these charges. Once the state of Oregon had done that, they ran into a brick wall though with investors. And this is because, like I said, up to that point, Dennis had been paying his investors the money that he had owed them. So like no one had complained about Dennis. It was literally just the state of Oregon not liking what he was doing and like kind of finding his behavior fishy. This is why they got so much resistance and tension from the investors who were not willing to turn their backs on Dennis, who they considered an incredible cash cow. Walker immediately filed a countersuit on the state of Oregon, um, and he received a series of summons from the state, but he failed to show up to court. He asked an employee named Sandy Sanders to box up all of his sports memorabilia, and Sandy happily obliged because he was under the impression that he was boxing all of these things up for Mr. Dennis so that he could that go ahead and sell it for liquid assets to pay off the remaining balance to the investors and basically to keep the state from getting their grubby little hands all over his stuff. In 1986, the memorabilia was put in a van and it was never seen again. 16 months later, a man named Charles Lee um, found a dead body in a Las Vegas motel. Uh, there was apparently no cause of death that was like extremely apparent and only a pill bottle was used to identify him. The police were able to determine that the body found in the motel in Las Vegas was the body of Dennis Walker. Autopsy records and photos also confirmed that it was Dennis. There was a number of theories surrounding what might have caused his death. Um, his mysterious death combined with the missing sports memorabilia that was never found makes Dennis's death an unsolved mystery. In the years since Dennis Walker's death, a few of his sports collectibles have actually come to light, including the uniform and World Series ring worn by Babe Ruth. But where do they come from? Who sold them? And where's the rest of it? This case remains unsolved, and while $120,000 of the memorabilia has resurfaced, where is the rest of it that totals to the amount of almost $22 million? Another mystery is what caused Dennis's death, because even now, no cause of death has ever been determined. For every mystery, there is someone somewhere who knows the truth. What do you make of these cases? Is there one case that is particularly more interesting to you? What are your thoughts about the Billy Jack Haynes interview? Do you think any of these cases stand a chance in being solved? 
let me know in the comments of the post I made on my Instagram at Mystery Still Unsolved. Don't forget, I also have a website, www.mysterystillunsolved.com, where you can listen to all of the episodes in one place. I hope that you guys will join me tonight in my live event celebrating my one-year podcast anniversary. I'm excited to have the chance to talk to you in real time. Thank you so much for your continued support and love. Thank you for DMing me with compliments and um, encouragement and case suggestions. If you want to know how you can further support this podcast, please consider following me on Instagram at Mystery Still Unsolved. Uh, tell a true crime loving family member, friend, coworker, neighbor about me. Uh, mention me in your Instagram stories and the best way. Join me next week when together we'll discover did someone ever place a useful tip? Has justice prevailed? Or is the mystery still unsolved? <laughs>